There's a string of abandoned history linked with infamous criminals and bank robbers, Bonnie and Clyde. Come with us now in part two of our series as we dive back into time to the 1930s and explore the abandoned history and ghost towns of Bonnie and Clyde. Hello and welcome to another Midwest Ghost Town podcast. My name is Dan Klein. I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town and abandoned history adventurer. And like we say on this channel, let's keep history alive. And one way we can certainly do that is by talking about it, making this podcast, and of course, videos as well. We've been covering the history of abandoned places that connect themselves to the story of infamous criminals, bank robbers, and murderers, Bonnie and Clyde. Part one, we gave a little background to the couple, their history, and I say a little because the truth is that the entire story of Bonnie and Clyde covers quite a bit of ground, from their upbringing to, quite frankly, where things went wrong. From little crimes of car theft, to stealing chickens and turkeys, to all-out burglaries, robberies, and murder, prison escapes, shootouts, and the list goes on and on. There's a whole string of crimes that are scattered across the Midwest connected with Bonnie and Clyde, and I have absolutely glossed over some of those big events. Mainly, what I'm trying to do here at Midwest Ghost Town is tie the couple's story to a couple abandoned places, farms, possible hideouts, hangouts, and of course, ghost towns. And as we are in luck, it happens, there are plenty of these to go around. We started talking about the now ghost town of Cement City down in West Dallas, Texas, where the couple had their upbringing and talked about their poverty and length. But of course, not giving it complete justice because we know there's always more to the story. It's kind of like that really. Stories that are underground or unknown, and you come across the stories of Bonnie and Clyde. And it's important to pause here for a moment and reiterate the sensitivity connected with Bonnie and Clyde. Because it was more than just a 21-month bank robbing spree. It started out tame. But as time progressed, Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang crimes grew worse. It became a 21-month killing spree. And while we can sit back and psychoanalyze why Clyde became this or that, and how serving some time in East Ham Prison Farm, known as the Bloody Ham, and how his sexual assault and its killing his assaulter ultimately changed him, it's in reality without excuse. We can certainly look at the stories of serial killers, look back at their childhood, and psychoanalyze why, or what caused this, but the grim reality is that it does not excuse crimes were still committed. We're not here to celebrate or glamorize Bonnie and Clyde, but rather just tell history, especially with the ghost towns associated with them. This brings us back up to speed. At this point, we will skip ahead to Platte City, Missouri, and the shootout. And this is where everything began crashing down for Bonnie and Clyde. As we lead up to the story of the abandoned amusement park outside Dexter, Iowa. But first, a background story. The gang was in bad shape. They had been on the run for quite some time, and the shootout in Joplin, Missouri had them rattled. Clyde had always been notorious for his crazy, reckless high-speed driving, especially in a classic V8 Ford, and it finally caught up to him on the night of June 10th, 1933, in an event known as the Red River Plunge. 
Clyde was racing to get out of Texas and into Oklahoma along US 83. It was pitch black, and he was going around 70 miles per hour, which caused Clyde to totally miss the detour signs warning him of the bridge ahead being out over the Salt Fork portion of the Red River, and plunged off an embankment into a dry riverbed, rolling, crashing, and completely destroying the stolen car. The Pritchard family sat on their porch enjoying ice cream when they witnessed the accident. Acting as good Samaritans, the Pritchards set out to help and ended up pulling Bonnie from the wreckage with her right leg completely coated in acid from the car's smashed battery. She was instantly burned from her hip down to her ankle and the skin was completely gone, with bones showing in some places. The Pritchards carried Bonnie back to the house to give her medical attention. Now there's a couple points I want to kind of stop here and just kind of talk about what's going on with the story. Number one, this scenario is important to point out because it begins the downward spiral of trying to seek medical attention for Bonnie while trying to stay under the radar and prevent police detection and pursuit. It absolutely slowed them down. Furthermore, it lowered the distance that Clyde was willing to go because of a severely injured Bonnie. Number two, more saga happens at the Pritchard's home with the authorities showing up the Barrow Gang shoots their way out, stealing the policeman's car and heading the next three days through Oklahoma and Kansas and eventually staying at the now non-existent Twin Cities Tourist Camp outside of Fort Smith, Arkansas, where the gang rented two cabins and paid for a doctor and a nurse to come assist Bonnie with her leg. Number three, this was a pattern for Clyde and I want to kind of point this out so you can kind of see where he would go. He would go in circles. Number one, always crossing state lines to avoid local pursuit and jurisdiction. He'd go from Texas to Oklahoma, to Oklahoma to Kansas, or Arkansas to Louisiana, and back again to Texas. And of course, there were a host of other states mixed in there from Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, Illinois, and Ohio, and even further south to Mississippi. But the key was, he was always on the move. And the long distances sometimes in spurts of about a thousand miles or so. But with Bonnie Hurt, this changed everything. Speeding up to July 1933, the gang had made its way up to Fort Dodge, Iowa, where it wanted to make some low-key robberies. In other words, not banks. And did a robbery string of about three service stations, stealing a grand total, are you ready for this? $150 approximately, but enough to keep the gang alive with food and supplies. They end up driving approximately 250 miles south on Highway 71 until they cross over to Missouri and come to Platte City, Missouri. Now, this is preparing us for a couple of things. The end of Clyde brother, Buck, and his wife, Blanche, and leading us up to the story of the now ghost town and abandoned amusement park in Iowa. So we're coming up to that, but first, the gang decides to rest for a couple nights on July 18th and July 19th in 1933 at a crossroad rest stop called the Red Crown Tavern. Everything goes wrong. The gang is trying to take care of Bonnie's injured leg, trying to get some rest and try to stay undercover, but they are recognized. And early in the morning, on July 20th, local authorities have a major shootout 
inside the barrel. They trap them in their rooms, they try blocking their car in the garage. The entire gang makes it to the car for the getaway, except for Clyde's brother Buck and his wife Blanche, who are trapped on the other side of the cabin that is not attached to the garage. They have to run for it. And in the process of running to the car, a barrage of bullets hit Buck in the left temple, with the bullet exiting his left forehead, an injury so bad that part of his brain was partially exposed. The determined Blanche is able to somehow carry Buck to the vehicle, drape her body over him in the back seat to protect him as they make their getaway. In that exact moment, gunfire riddles the windows and sends shattered glass into Blanche's eyes, where she quickly screams that she can't see Clyde rising out of the shootout, making his way into Iowa with stops along the way to bandage up. And this is where we are today. The Barrow Gang is badly beat up. Buck Barrow is dying in the back seat with a hole in his head. And the other gang members are dealing with other injuries, most notably Bonnie, who is dealing with a permanent injured leg from being burned by battery acid, and now Blanche, who is facing being blinded by shards of glass stuck in her eyes. And this is where possibly the story of the ghost town of Caledonia, Iowa, comes into the picture. Now, whether it fits into the narrative of when the gang made their getaway out of Platte City or not is up in the air. Caledonia, Iowa was over by Mount Air, Iowa, and there were stories of general store owner Mr. Burchett telling of Bonnie and Clyde stopping for supplies. Bonnie had to consistently change the dressings on her leg, and now with Buck's head injury, the supplies were in greater need. They did, in fact, make stops along the way for bandages, hydrogen peroxide, and aspirin. So it's believable that they visited Caledonia Ghost Town. But this leads us up to the next abandoned place. They finally made their way through Dexter, Iowa. And on July 20th, Clyde found an abandoned amusement park. It was perfect. In Clyde's opinion, because he just wanted to get away, where the gang could go unnoticed, that they could just rest and heal up. And that Buck could die in peace. He knew that his brother was dying. The amusement park was known as Dexfield Park, a name given because it was an area between Dexter and Redfield, Iowa. It became a popular place in 1915 and throughout the 20s with carnival rides and a dance hall. But when the Great Depression hit, few could afford the cost of the amusement park. And by 1933, it closed its gates for good which gave the Barrow Gang a perfect hideout. Clyde pulled into the park, picked a secluded spot in a grove of trees, and recruited fellow gang member W.D. Jones to help him dig a grave for Buck. And this is where history turns. After four days staying in Dexfield Park, from July 20th through July 24th, everything seemed peaceful. They were literally pouring peroxide through the hole in Buck's head, but miraculously, he was still alive. Locals discovered the camp, however, and on the morning of the 24th, local authorities and others came to ambush and capture the gang. Someone heard the snap of a twig, and gunfire erupted. There were bullets hitting the car, while Clyde returned his own barrage of bullets into the brush and trees. Through the chaos, the gang became separated with Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D., making it down to the banks of the Raccoon River. But Buck and Blanche were stuck in the gunfire back at the camp. 
Buck was hit several more times before both eventually surrendered to authorities. Buck himself was taken to a local hospital where he was questioned, but he fell into a coma on July 27th and died two days later on Saturday, July 29th. He was only 30. His wife Blanche was led away for questioning and was eventually taken back to Platt City, Missouri to face more questions about the shootout there. Bonnie and Clyde and W.D., however, somehow escaped the abandoned park. By crossing the Raccoon River, they made their way across the river, held up a family, and stole their car, which they took to Polk City, Iowa. They made their way out of Iowa to Nebraska, and the stolen Ford V8 from Polk City was later found in Broken Bow, Nebraska on July 28th. And this leads us to our next ghost town, Sowers, Texas. Clyde zigzagged his way across the Midwest, constantly on the move and on the run to avoid attention and authorities. They eventually made their way back to Texas, and along the way, they had a few more robberies, including hitting an Illinois armory to rebuild their lost arsenal of guns and ammo. But from September to November, they tried to stay low and reunited with their families. However, local authorities discovered their whereabouts and made plans to ambush the gang and put an official end to Bonnie and Clyde. November 21st and 22nd of 1933. Outside the now ghost town of Sowers, Texas, Clyde arranged a picnic to celebrate his mother's 59th birthday and another get-together the following night before leaving. And Sowers was the place that went down in history as the near miss. This is where the ambush took place. The local authorities hid and were well-armed to take out the gang. But at 6.45 p.m. on the night of the 22nd, as Clyde approached, he had a bad feeling. And he felt like something was wrong, and so he drove past the meeting spot, picking up speed as he went. The police officer began to shoot at the black Ford V8, bullets flying all around, smashing the windows and the windshield of the sedan. There was a return of gunfire as Clyde shot back. His family in the car nearby tried to duck for cover as gunfire barraged all around them. A slug from the Browning Automatic hit the side door and passed through Clyde and Bonnie's legs, adding to their toll of injuries. But they made their getaway. The once rural community of Sowers can still be found today as a ghost town, but it's fully incorporated into the boundaries of what is now Irving, Texas. The only thing remaining of that town today is the cemetery. Just some interesting side notes as we mention a few more possible abandoned spots with Bonnie and Clyde. Number one, after the shootout in Texas, Bonnie and Clyde went north into Oklahoma, sought help and refuge from the notorious gangster, Pretty Boy Floyd. Pretty Boy Floyd despised them. He thought they were careless and reckless around civilians. When Bonnie and Clyde arrived at Pretty Boy Floyd's home, he wasn't there, but his sister was there. She refused to let them stay, but she felt sorry for Bonnie and her injuries and offered them food and medical supplies before sending them on their way. Pretty Boy Floyd finds out about this and is mad. He forbid her to ever help them again and said, if they don't like it, they can look me up. Even John Dillinger himself thought less of the couple, calling them nothing but a bunch of kids stealing grocery money. Leaving Oklahoma... Bonnie and Clyde finally get even with East Ham Prison. Now, this is a big part of the entire story, but we just want to kind of point this out of what's going on. Finally, Clyde makes it back and has a breakout 
of several from the prison work farm. After the prison break, they go on a bank robbery spree, and here is a list of some of the known banks. First National in Rembrandt, Iowa. Central National Bank in Pateau, Oklahoma. State Savings Bank in Canerum, Iowa and in Lamoni, Iowa. R.P. Henry & Sons Bank in Lancaster, Texas. First National Bank in Stewart, Iowa. And their last bank robbery in Everly, Iowa. Now, growing up in Northwest Iowa, I have some stories tied to a few of these places. Right now, my house is literally 30 minutes from Rembrandt, 15 minutes from Everly, and about two hours from Canerum, and three hours from Stewart. So I had personal stories with a friend of mine who was telling me the story of the Everly robbery. And I kind of feel tied to some of these because I'm right in the middle and vicinity into a lot of these banks that were robbed in Iowa. He knew that there were certain artifacts related to that bank, and he kind of knows where they are today. He had heard stories that the gang was camped out near Peterson, Iowa, in the state park around the Little Sioux River. There are other accounts of local farmers near Sutherland, Iowa, a few miles down the road from Peterson, that had similar run-ins with a gang. Camped out on farmland near the Little Sioux River, one story had a local farmer curious on who was camped out on his land. He began to approach them when one of the gang members reached for something at his side, presumably a gun. But nothing came of it when the farmer decided to leave the group alone. After reporting the incident in O'Brien County, they had found bandages around the campsite, matching with other reports of injuries within the gang. After the Rembrandt robbery, there was widespread fear around Storm Lake, Iowa, that the gang might try a robbery attempt at one of their banks, at the time, they had banks on the corners of their downtown area, which is on the intersection of Fifth and Lake. And they thought if one of the banks got robbed, they would set an ambush up at all the banks and they could converge on the one being robbed as an ambush. Well, that robbery never came. With that being said, and this is important to note, Bonnie and Clyde did not make bank robberies the main part of their crime sprees. For a lot of reasons, really. Number one, they weren't very good at it. The times they were actually successful and actually got more than $1,500 from a bank, they had more bank robbery help from other criminals, one of them being notorious criminal Raymond Hamilton. Number two, they didn't want the high profile. They wanted quick and easy hits to keep on the move and on the run from authorities. So the naturally convenience stores, grocery stores, things like that. Little robberies so they keep them on the fly. Number three, even though they liked the thrill of being famous, it was the local papers looking for a story to tell and papers to sell that added fuel to the fire. There is a list of a couple other hideouts. Two of them are ones I found online and don't have as much on them, and it could be linked with more folklore than fact, but the last one is definitely directly associated with Bonnie and Clyde. Those hideouts are... Grove City, Illinois, the safe house they had a run in 1934, as seen by the string of banks, and it rumored that they stayed at the Sadler house there outside of Grove City. The second place is back down in Texas, in Frio Town, now a ghost town, known as Frio City, Texas, before 1886, 
It can be found south of the Presidio Crossing on the Frio River in Frio County, Texas. The town once had a general store, a courthouse, and a jail, and over six cattle breeders present. The only thing left is the cemetery. Bonnie and Clyde were rumored to be in and around the town buying supplies and hiding out at a place outside of Frio Town as a place that was known as Hideout Ranch. And last but not least is the story that is documented where Bonnie and Clyde hid out in and around fellow gang members Henry Methvin's family and home in Bienville Parish, Louisiana. A local neighbor to the Methvins, the Cole family, had died of tuberculosis. John and wife Jessie and two daughters. And the house was completely abandoned due to the disease. Not only that, but the house was completely intact with furniture. And nobody would live there out of fear of catching the illness. But Bonnie and Clyde were not afraid of catching something like TB. They both felt like their time on earth was going to be short and having a hideout house like an abandoned coal house in a place like Bienville Parish was perfect. It was close to both their home in Texas, yet close enough to Shreveport, Louisiana if they needed anything. And it was in the back roads of Louisiana, a place where nobody would be looking for them. Today, the exact location is a mystery. The hideout is believed to no longer stand. It's said to have burned down before the 1970s. I've caught some other videos I've kind of seen where people were have been looking and searching for the spot of their hideout down in Bienville. But from other accounts, it does sound like that property no longer exists. Bonnie and Clyde, the Barrow Gang, youngsters on the road, ghost towns visited, abandoned houses, farms that made their hideouts. Most are gone today. And although you can still visit the banks robbed, and of course, Dexfield Park has a large stone marking the event in history as the shootout that took Buck and Blanche, the story came to a violent and sudden end as history tells it. Texas Ranger Frank Hamer was persuaded out of retirement to hunt the criminal couple down. And hunt them, he did. A final successful ambush was set up with an instant standoff that ended with a barrage of 167 rounds being fired at the couple in less than 20 seconds. 112 of them leaving holes in the car. The official coroner's account said that Bonnie was hit 26 times and Clyde 17 times. But other accounts show that they were possibly both hit over 50 times by bullets. The bodies had so many holes in them that the local undertaker had a hard time embalming the bodies. Of course, both Bonnie and Clyde were well aware that this was how it would probably end for them. Even Bonnie put it in a poem called The End of the Line. You've read the story of Jesse James and how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not as ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate all the law, the stool, pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. But the laws fooled around, kept taking him down and locking him up in a cell till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. The road was so dimly lighted, there were no highway signs to guide, but they made up their minds if all the roads were blind, they wouldn't give up 
until they died. The road gets dimmer and dimmer. Sometimes you can hardly see. But it's fight man to man and do all you can, for they know they can never be free. From heartbreak, some people have suffered. From weariness, some people have died. But take it all in, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If a policeman is killed in Dallas, and they have no clue or guide, if they can't find a fiend, they just wipe their slate clean and hang it on Bonnie and Clyde. There's two crimes committed in America, not a credit to the Barrow mob. They had no hand in the kidnapped man, nor the Kansas City Depot job. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde could get jumped. In these hard times, we make a few dimes if five or six cops would get bumped. The police haven't got the report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA. From Irving to West Dallas Viaduct, it's known as the Great Divide, where the women are kin and the men are men, and they won't stool on Bonnie and Clyde. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-tat-tat. They don't think they're too smart or desperate. They know the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they're not to ignore the death is the wages of sin. Someday, they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To a few, it will be grief to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. The infamous duo Bonnie and Clyde have us reflecting on their haunting allure of their criminal legacy and the abandoned places that still bear witness to their turbulent lives. Throughout this two-part series, we have journeyed through their story, exploring some hidden corners, forgotten hideouts, and some ghost towns along the way. As we close this two-part series of the Midwest Ghost Town podcast, featuring a look into Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, let us remember to share the stories together. Maybe you have one to add to the mix. Certainly drop a comment below. It's always fun to learn together, have a discussion, as we like to say on this channel. Let's keep history alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town. <laughs>